Well, I look around at <clears throat> all the t-shirts and I feel a little outnumbered because the only person I had going with me was Griff. This doesn't count as part of my time, but I must say to you folks that I don't feel sorry for y'all getting sick having to go to the hospital because I spent 15 days in Africa with Griff. (laughs) I've been waiting a long time to repay him for all of those nights when it was seeming like 130 degrees in our room and I was sweating, my clothes were sweating, I was sweating, the bed was wet and Griff would turn to me and say, Don, if you don't mind, I think I'm going to turn this air conditioning down. (laughs) Before we got to Sudan, it was necessary for us to spend a few days in Ethiopia for several reasons. And as we visited in Ethiopia, uh, part of our purpose in being in Ethiopia was to visit some of the preacher training schools and the kindergartens that were there because we were going to use them as a model for what we're going to develop in, uh, in South Sudan. And one of the preacher training schools we went to visit, we happened to just walk across and come right up to one of the students Now, this is an Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Do you see that shirt? (laughs) Well, I explained to this poor guy that um, it was going to be harder for him to get to heaven wearing clothing like that. (laughs) And so... And now he is much happier. <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, in talking about uh, these things that we're talking about today, that um, we're doing the same thing that the Apostle Paul did when he came back from the first missionary journey that he went on. In Acts 14 and verse 27. And the Bible says that on arriving there, this was back in Antioch when they returned. They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and that that's what we're doing here tonight. I, uh, before I get into telling you very much about um, Ethiopia, uh, Sudan, I, I, uh, I, I need to tell you something that's very important uh, for me to say to you. And that is that I must compliment this congregation for the amount of mission work that you're doing. Not only just for the amount of money, which is about $250,000 a year, that you're, you're sending to mission work and supporting mission work all over the world, but also for the folks who are going and participating in these, in these mission projects too. And that's very, very important to being a real New Testament church. And I must, I hope that you will work hard to maintain that and not ever let it change. Because if you do, I'm going to come back and haunt you. Because you changed and uh, it won't get better if you turn away from this mission work.
Probably many of you have been seeing a lot of the information that's on our media today about the, about the problems in Darfur and uh, about the uh, humanitarian organizations that have been kicked out of Sudan. And you're asking me, well, how does that affect our work there? And in order to explain that to you, you need to understand that when we talk about Sudan these days, you're really talking about two countries. There's northern Sudan, which is technically called Sudan. And then there's the southern Sudan, which is where we will be working, which is South Sudan, the government of South Sudan. It is there where we're working in Darfur and all of the problems that you're reading about in the, in the newspaper and hearing on TV are in the north part of Sudan, and that is Muslim. And we're working in the Christian center uh, in, in South Sudan. So it's really not affecting us a lot, a lot, or not at all. On our trip, I must say to you that um, we learned a lot. It was not an evangelistic trip that we were going on. We were going because um, this was the first time that we had ever been able to get into South Sudan uh, because it was not deemed to be secure enough for us to go. And this year it was, and it was our first time, and we felt very secure. And we went to learn things. We learned about uh, how to uh, learn things that will help us to understand the country and the people and the land. And these things are very vital to knowing how to make plans that we need to make. I want to tell you about some of the difficulties that we have to deal with there and will continue to deal with in South Sudan It'll help you to understand the people and the circumstances that are there. You must understand that the country of uh, South Sudan has been in a civil war for about 25 years. That ended in peace accord was signed in 2005. And up to that time, and there were hundreds of thousands of people in South Sudan that were killed simply because they were not Muslims. And there were probably two million people that were displaced into foreign countries living in refugee camps for perhaps over 20 years, just barely existing. When we flew into uh, South Sudan, we flew into Juba, which is the capital city. The airport in Juba, the capital city of South Sudan, was a tiny three-room airport. It was hot. There were no fans. The bathrooms were simply a hole and a concrete floor. Uh, tell you a little bit about how that things work in South Sudan is that we arrived at uh, 9.30 into the airport on our return coming home and um, we were catching an 11.15 flight. So at 9.30 we were there ready to check our bags and our papers were in order and all of those things. Finally, at 5 o'clock that afternoon, the plane showed up to take us home. And then it didn't go to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, which is supposed to. It went to uh, Kampala, Uganda. The accommodations uh, that we lived with and that are available to us in Juba were not much better. We stayed at a, the Beijing Hotel as you can imagine, is owned by the Chinese, probably the Chinese government. The Beijing Hotel cost us $150 a night to stay there. And uh, it would have made Motel 6 look very luxurious. 
I'll give you just one example of it. If you took the tissue paper that was in the bathroom, took it out and put it in the ground and watered it, I know it would grow. <clears throat> Let me just show you some pictures of how things were like in South Sudan. This is the capital city. This is downtown South Sudan. There are no sidewalks. If you want to go to the grocery store, this is it. This is where you would go to find something that, that you want to eat. This is one of the main streets of South Sudan. There are only 14 miles of paved roads in the whole country of South Sudan. You see, what you're looking at and what you're seeing and that we experience is here is a country that was totally decimated during a 25-year civil war and is having to build itself all over again. Sometimes the um, vehicles that we traveled in were not always uh, the best, and here we're having a uh, flat tire. Griff there is watching that flat tire, making sure that no one gets away with it. Uh, <clears throat> you didn't see him changing the tire, did you? I was busy. I was taking the picture. Now, here, here are, is an example. I took this picture out the front window of the vehicle, uh, thinking this is an example of bad roads. I realized a little bit later this was an example of the better part of the roads. The, the roads during this country, in this period, in this whole country, were just let go. There was no improvements, no uh, keeping up of the roads at all. And this is one of the better parts. And sometimes we had to stop and go survey a mud hole to see which the best way was to get around it. And sometimes we did not able to get around it, that, that uh, we were stuck. If you pay real close attention here, there's a little um, red sign there. You probably can't read it, but um, the bathroom was just on the other side of that sign out there in those trees. And uh, that sign says it has a, a skull and crossbones on it, and it says, Danger Mine. The whole countryside is just filled with mines. But yet when we got to the part of the country where we were, our, was, was our destination, it was a very beautiful, very scenic country. And uh, this, uh, it was a very pleasant place to be and very, uh, very uh, enjoyable. The people, we found them to be very friendly, very pleasant. They were very receptive. They welcomed us everywhere we went. And uh, when we... Uh, to accomplish our purpose, we tried to do a survey to find out how many congregations there were. You see, because up till about a year ago, all of the members of the church were living in refugee camps in foreign countries. Now they have come back home to their home villages. We were able to identify 21 congregations. And uh, as we tried to visit some of these congregations, um, you know, we, we thought uh, now... You know, we're here not here to try to convert these people. We don't even know how to preach to these people. We don't know their needs. We don't know anything about where these people are. And, uh, and I was asked some of the native preachers there what, um, what we should do. They said, um, just give them a word of encouragement. He said, the thing that you can do is to let them know they have not been forgotten. And that's what they wanted from us most of all. The first congregation that we visited was the congregation in Juba. 
And here they're gathered uh, for us to come. This is one of the wealthier congregations because, you see, they have chairs to sit in. And uh, everybody's gathered. Everybody, we have, everybody that speaks has to have an interpreter, either interpret when we're speaking to them or when someone's speaking to them, they interpret so we can understand. Not everybody has a chair. Not everybody could get inside the little building that they had, and so they sat down on the outside. That was no problem. They were perfectly happy to do that. And um, here's, an, here's a picture that I wanted to show you because it's a picture of a man holding a Bible. It's a copy of the Bible that was paid for by donations from this congregation, this particular man. The man here that you're seeing is Isaiah Jackson. We oversee Isaiah, and uh, we are involved in, in his work, overseeing his work. The, just to the right of Isaiah is his wife. To the left is his daughter-in-law and his grandson. I learned very quickly in getting acquainted with these people that you don't, you don't determine their value by their looks. Because here's a man that probably in his class would have been deemed to be the least likely to succeed. Now, if you compare this man with all the classmates that he went through Sunset School with, you would probably find that he has been the most successful. This man will probably go down as one of the great leaders of the church in Africa. As he has baptized over 3,500 people, is an extremely valuable leader of the church. The next congregation we went to see, we drove as far as we could, and then we got out and walked. I bet you don't get out and walk in El Salvador to where you're going. But we had to. There was no way to get there. When we got there, they didn't have chairs. Uh, they just had some tarps uh, held up by poles uh, as shades. And they, they sat on the ground and uh, they listened. They were perfectly happy to do that. It didn't bother them that they didn't have chairs to sit in. This young man, I think, was quite leery of me. I was probably the first white person that he'd ever seen. And here are the men of the congregation and uh, Griff and myself that were visiting there. The man in the middle with the blue shirt and the, and the camera around his neck is named Samuel Carey. Samuel lives here in Nashville, was converted here. This is his home village. And we were there to help them get the church established. When we arrived there, this is where we found the church meeting. It was inside these buildings here. We didn't know what these buildings were. We soon found out they were chicken houses. And they're not down chickens in them yet, but they're planning. This is going to be a chicken ranch. I decided that probably I was one of the first preachers in the Church of Christ worldwide to preach in a church, the first sermon in a church called the Chicken Ranch Church of Christ. But... Uh, uh, we found out later that um, they had decided that they would uh, needed a more central location, so the chief of the community gave them some land. Here they are. They're clearing it off. They're putting, they've cut some poles. They're putting those in the ground. Then they put a tent over all of those, and then they put up a sign. It says, Opari Church of Christ welcomes you. Now, you've got to understand something about this, folks. This is the way it works in South Sudan. This is why we're there. And that is, there's not a person in this group has ever been baptized. They want to be a church of Christ. And so they have put up a building, they have put up a sign, and say, we want to be a church of Christ. Now will you please send somebody to teach us and to baptize us? And what do you say to them when there isn't anyone? 
Fortunately, in the meantime, we have been able to find somebody who would go and uh, teach and preach to these people. The very first time that this church met, there were 52 adults and 45 children that were present. And you notice they do things backwards. Usually we go in and preach and we try to find some, get some people together and then we build a building to put them in. These people built the building, put up the sign, and they said, now will you come and establish a church? And that's what we did. Here they are meeting. And uh, here's a picture of them gathered together uh, and that, that very first Sunday. Here's some of the ladies. Here's one of the problems that you'll see in that part of the country too, and this is where they get their water. There really isn't any streams during the dry season of the year, and so they dig a hole in the sand close to where a stream was and wait for the water to seep up, and then they put it in that jerry can and take it. The only problem is that the, some the kids come along, other people come along and use the very same hole to, to, to bathe in, and then somebody else comes along and washes their clothes in that hole, and that all contaminates the water, and then when they drink it after that, they get sick. This is the local filling station. If you want to stop and get some diesel, you have to stop there and fill up with one of those cans. The next church that we visited was the Maji Church. No, it's the Magui Church. I can't read from here uh, what this is supposed to be. Uh, this is the Magui Church. This is the, this is the community where we're going to establish the preacher training school. In the blue shirt here is Isaiah Jackson again, and next to him is another man that... Uh, uh, that this congregation supports, uh, Andrew. Andrew is very fluent in English and uh, has a 12th grade education. We have great hopes for Andrew's service to us. This is the church building, the church meeting place in Mogwe. You see, it's not very much. We use places like that to corral our cattle in, but they have no money so they go out and they get poles from the woods and then they take these free tarps from the UN and put over it for shade and this is their meeting place that they have there. And it works. And this is the pulpit stand. Now you want to put your notes on that and try to read them while you preach and it's pretty, pretty difficult. This, is, um, this picture is taken now. This building is located on the property that we own where we're going to put the preacher training school. And these are some views of the property. And you see some of the houses that people live in, living on our property right now. But we've been told that they will move when we get ready to build. And this is, this is the property where this preacher training school is going to be located. These are some of the men of the congregation there. This lady was pointed out to me as uh, the first person that was baptized in the church there. And uh, she is, works in a clinic. And uh, these are a couple of pictures of some of the other sisters in the congregation uh, there as well. Um, this, uh, this one good thing we have about this piece of land, and that is that we have outdone the Catholics for the first time in my life, is that uh, we have a piece of property on the main road. The Catholics have a piece of property behind us. And we have a better location than they do. And this is on one of the main roads going someplace else. These ladies, unfortunately, did not come to church. They were out working. And um, this is a view across, looking across the street from the entrance to the preacher training school property. 
And the next place that we visited was the Maji Church. Here is their building. And this was the group that was gathered that uh, time to, for us to speak to. This is the group that's gathered. If you really notice closely in some of these pictures, these people are sitting on poles. They've just put two poles in the ground over here and then put a pole across it. And that thing is round. And those people sit on that for hours. And they listen. They don't go to sleep. They don't complain because you're running overtime. Matter of fact, if you only preach 30 minutes, they're, they're, they're offended because they maybe walked a long ways to hear you preach and it wasn't worth coming if you didn't preach that longer than that. And I think that they can sit on those poles all those times. One of the things that really impressed us was always there were a lot of children in every service that we went to, a lot of children, which says to us that one of the prime things we need to do is to be teaching those children. Another thing that someone pointed out to us, and there's, of course, while we're working, I'm preaching hard. Griff is working the crowd there. And uh, uh, one of the things that... uh, Someone pointed out to me one day when we were looking at a large group of of children, he said, you must realize that probably half of these children are orphans because their parents were killed in the war. Next congregation we visited was what was called the Agora Unity Church. Here is their meeting place. These people weren't able to get under the shade in the meeting place, so they were in the shade outside, but that was no problem. They would sit on the ground and uh, listen to the preaching very attentively out there. Now, at this congregation, there were some people that were going to be baptized. They have no baptistry. They have no stream. They have no water in that area except a pump. So they dug a hole like a burial plot, They lined it with plastic tarps that the UN gave them. And then these uh, young ladies filled this with water from the local pump. Now you can imagine how long it takes to fill a baptistry with uh, five-gallon jerry cans. But it worked though. These people were baptized. This was a former Jehovah's Witness. He wanted to be the first one that was baptized that day. And there were several other baptized in this uh, makeshift baptistry, whatever we would call it. Uh, But it really did work. These ladies did not go to church either that day. I don't know that men there have something figured out that we don't. Uh, Another thing that impressed me was that these ladies fill up one of those jerry cans with five gallons of water and then they put it up on top of their head and walk home several miles. I am not sure I could have picked that can up. And here they are carrying it on their heads. He's got to be good. Uh, Crip is working the crowd again. Here's the, uh, the chief of the village came to our services that day. One of the things that was really impressive on our trip was that um, in one place that we went to, while just as our group arrived, some UN refugee trucks arrived filled with returning refugees. And as these trucks arrived, they said that uh, the people from all around the whole village and the houses and the school, everything, came out and ran toward those trucks and they all started hollering out things. We later found out they were hollering out names because they thought that perhaps some of their relatives might be on this truck and they had never seen these relatives 
but they wanted to holler out their names. Perhaps they could identify each other in that way. These people are, in, are returning home from 20 plus years of living in another country back to their home now. It is expected that in these villages even that we visited, the population will double or triple in the next few years. I want you to notice in the back of this truck, the back of this truck, you see all those bags, those plastic bags? Those plastic bags are the total possessions of each one of those families. These families are taken, picked up at this refugee camp, put in the back of this truck. They're allowed to bring this sack with all of their possessions that they have in it, and then they're brought to this location and they're dumped. They're on their own then, and that's all that they have. Well, we learned a lot. We learned a lot about the conditions. We learned a lot about the people while we were there. One little thing that uh, I must tell you too is that as these um, trucks brought these families back home, Samuel was there. Samuel was someone that was preaching and um, he was trying to establish a church so the village people thought of him as a, as a preacher, although he really wasn't. And um, this family that he got acquainted with arrived on the truck one day the next day, their four-year-old daughter died of severe vomiting and diarrhea, which was probably caused by the drinking water. And because Samuel was the only person they knew that was religious in the community, they asked him to preach the funeral for them. Well, you can see from this the conditions, the houses, how the people are starting from scratch. There are lots of problems we've got to attend to. Number one is like this, that that when we arrived there and we preached in Sunday services with the congregations, when we got through, they went home. They didn't have communion. We were kind of bothered by that and we were getting the leaders together ready to do some teaching about this and they explained to us that they don't have communion because there is no, no grape juice in South Sudan. And they said, even if there was a bottle of grape juice that we could have, you open it up and use a little bit of it, then you seal it back up in a week's time, it's ruined and there is no grape juice. Well, we're going to, we're going to attend to that. One of the things that really impressed us then was the priority that we must give to this. The priority must be the preacher training school. That's got to be it. One man pointed out to me one day, said, Don, said, of the 21 congregations that we can identify in this area of this tribe, there are only two of them that we would consider to be mature. And the rest are not because they don't have any teaching. While Samuel was there, he received a telephone call one day. This man that was calling was a chief of another tribe in another area close to where he was. He said, I have heard that you're there preaching and teaching and you're starting a church. He said, I'm, I'm chief of a tribe of about four or 5,000 people. We have no church, no preacher in our people. Would you come here and start a church and preach for our people too? And Samuel had to tell him that he really wasn't a preacher and that he lived in the United States. It is possible for us in South Sudan to start congregations as often as we want to. The problem is you start one and there is no one to teach them. So what do you do? You go in and you baptize several people, tell them you're, they're a church of Christ now, then you leave them. And what are they going to do then? 
So we figured out some questions that we have to answer. We figured out what has to be done, and so we come home to work on it. And to be honest with you, one of the things that we learned is that it's going to be hard. We're trying to communicate with those people and build a school over there and establish a work when we're communicating with people 9,000 miles away and where communication is virtually non-existent. There is no electricity in these places. There are no telephones. There's no internet service, except that sometimes there's one available, and to send an email to us costs them $10. And it's going to be hard because we have to make decisions without all the information that we need. Like, how do we find bricks? What's a good price for bricks? How do we find the, the uh, material to build a fence around our property? How do we find a contractor? We're trying to do that 9,000 miles away. And then, frankly, the burden gets a little bit more staggering every day. But we will persevere. We're working on many things that hopefully in the future we'll be able to show you and tell you about when these things develop and we can announce them. Like one that happened to us just recently, an elder called me and he told me that... um, they had a check for us in the amount of a little over $6,000. So I went to visit them. This was out in the western part of the country. I went to visit them to determine what they would like to use that money for, several needs. And um, so I visited with them in their elders meeting, and I, I, I said to them before we ended, and I said, okay, now, I understand that this is $6,200 uh, for this year. And this elder looked at me and said, yes, $6,200 a year for 10 years that we're giving you, which was a little bit better. There are many, many things. We have a lot of needs still, though. That, that's very helpful for us. That will fund a particular part of the, our work. We needed to build a kindergarten. We're doing a kindergarten because the village requires us to do something in order to, uh, to practice our faith there, and that's something valuable for the community uh, and then it's very easy for us to do or easier than a lot of other things. And um, while we were there, there was the only kindergarten in town uh, offered to let us have their whole school and all of their students, which is 432 of them, if we would take over the whole school. There are other things, like there's a lot of relief that needs to be done. When those people come home from a refugee camp, they're dumped there. They are given by the UN enough corn to live on for three months. After that, they're on their own. They are not given any tools to clear the land. They're not giving any seeds to plant so they can grow something to eat. And so they come to us and say, would you give us enough to, to have a hoe and a machete uh, and some seeds to plant so we can grow a crop to, to live on? And they're coming and asking for us to that. If you'd like to talk with us, to either Griff or myself, about some of these needs, we'd be very happy to talk to you if you'll let, let us know. I fully believe and I'm persuaded that there's plenty of money to take care of everything that possibly we're going to need to do in South Sudan. It's still, of course, in our pocketbooks, but there's plenty of money there. I have said every time that I've talked, and I want to continue to say this because you must be impressed with this. This is something I know to be true. And I've said it every time, I'll say it again. 
the work in South Sudan, the need and the work in South Sudan is going to be massive. But the results are going to be massive also. God is preparing things for us that we do not yet see. They will blossom and the doors will open. Now we can go someplace and do mission work where there is a paved road where we can drink the water out of the faucet any place in the country and we won't have any of these needs that I've talked to you about here in South Sudan. But those places will not turn out by the hundreds when we go to preach the gospel to them as they will in South Sudan. I want to show you this picture. I hope you will look at this picture very, very hard. This picture was taken of a little girl in South Sudan. It's a little girl. She has no clothes on, and she has just skin and bones. The story was that she was on her way to a feeding station. And it's very obvious that this is as far as she could go. All of her energy was spent here. Do you notice the vulture just a few few feet away? He's waiting for her to just take her last breath. And then he will do his job. The people of South Sudan are not very far away from this picture. And spiritually, this is exactly where they are. They're like that little girl, as if they were begging for people to come and preach to them. They say to us that, you know, we we had a preacher come to our village and he stayed and he preached a while, but he left. No one will stay and preach to us. This is where they are. And the devil is lurking there just really close as a vulture, waiting for no one to come. The photographer took this picture, said that after he took it, he went over and sat down under a tree and cried. But the question that nearly everyone asks who looks at this picture is, why didn't he help the little girl? I've talked to you tonight about some massive things and some needs that we have that are going to be financially strong. And we can rationalize and say, well, we don't even know those people. Those people are 9,000 miles away and we don't even know them. Or you can rationalize and say, well, we can help them, but you can't help everybody. So we don't help anybody. If you think like that, I'm going to suggest to you that you tell it to that little girl and see if it makes her feel better. We need to take care of those little girls and a people who are just like that little girl. And I guarantee you that um, 
they will always remember that it was the church of Christ that fed them. Well, I like what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1 when he said, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. I have one other thing that I want to say to you tonight before we close. When I was in South Sudan, I was thirsty all the time that I was there. There was plenty of water. You buy water and just stop at a roadside stand and they would have cartons of water with three to six or eight bottles of water in each one of those and we'd buy a couple of them and take with us. And when I got thirsty, I would drink out of one of those bottles, drink all I could hold. And when I got through, I was just as thirsty as I was when I started. I was thirsty all the time. And at night, I would lay down and on my bed and I'd be sweating and the sheets would be damp and I couldn't sleep. Or sometimes I'd wake up and I'd be thirsty and so I'd reach for my bottle of water and I would drink it. And I would, after I got through drinking, I would be just as thirsty as I was when I started drinking and I would find myself laying there in bed fantasizing about when I got home and walked out of that airport, the first thing I was going to do was get me one of those big glasses full of ice and diet Coke and I was going to drink it forever because I was so thirsty over there. And you know, as I thought about that, I, I realized what Jesus was saying to the Samaritan woman in John the fourth chapter verse 13 and 14 he asked her for a drink and then he told her that everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst indeed the water I gave him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life You know, there are a whole lot of us folks that we live our lives, we've got it all lined out, we've got a good job, a good home, a good good furniture, a savings account, we've got good automobiles to drive, and uh, for some reason, we're still thirsty. Our lives are just not feeling right. We don't enjoy life like we thought we ought to. And it's because we're not drinking the right thing. We're not drinking what Jesus Christ gives us. Our life is not built around trying to please God. Our lives were trying to please God. We would find that we would never be spiritually thirsty. I don't know, maybe tonight your life is one that you just don't... You feel like something's missing, something's wrong, there's no fulfillment, 
There's no satisfaction in your life and it's because there's no values there that God is not there and you're not living it to please God. And if you want to live according to the way to please God, come and talk to us about it right now while we stand and sing.